0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Elizabeth Gernard to tell us about her book titled The Modern Venus, Dress, Underwear and Accessories in the Late 18th Century Atlantic World, published by Bloomsbury in 2023, which is a cool book, which is a fun book that takes us through the world. So I think probably a lot of us have seen in period dramas, in satire, maybe if we're lucky in some cool museum exhibitions, the rumps, the stays, the muffs, the handkerchiefs, all sorts of things that women wore in the late 18th century, Um, but maybe we haven't necessarily thought about them that much and certainly haven't analyzed them as effectively as Elizabeth has in this book. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us on the
1: podcast to tell us all about this. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to be sharing more about this book. I'm so glad to have
2: you. Could we start off please with you introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
1: Of course. Um, my name is Elizabeth Gernard and I am a lecturer at De Montfort University and I'm a fashion historian. So I started, like many of my colleagues, um, with a fervent interest in historical clothing and historical dress. And that led during my undergrad at Edinburgh to trying to get my hands on anything that resembled dress history, which I found um, and that led me into a master's and a phd and i'm sure this is a familiar a familiar story um but i i figured out that that's what i was really interested in and this book comes from my phd it had it had a little bit of a, a little bit of time to reflect and to come together in that post-phd transition but i'm really excited to share this research with a wider audience i'm really excited i didn't want it to just Stay as a PhD, but I'm really excited to share it with a wider audience. And because the research is well, no, no, I can't say the research is fantastic. That's that's self-serving. But the the material and what it actually explores, um, I think, is a really um, overlooked period, um, at least overlooked in terms of its source material. And it's just, I think, it's the best part of the 18th century, and I'm definitely biased to that. And I want to share it with as many people as possible. So. That's a little bit of why. No, that's great. And
2: certainly as a reader, I'm like, goodness, if this had stayed as a dissertation on some database somewhere, we'd be, we'd lose something so fun and fascinating. So I'm very glad it became a book. Um,
1: It it still is on a database somewhere. So if you, you know, (laughs) it's still out there. Um, But you know, this one, this one's prettier, significantly prettier.
2: It is actually quite pretty. So I'm glad we've highlighted that right at the beginning. Yeah. (laughs) As an, as my next question, um, I was already going to ask you about the time period and the fact you've already sort of highlighted it makes it even better as a next question. Can you tell us about what time period you focus
1: on particularly
2: and why you decided on this?
1: Yeah, I focus on what I've just referred to as the fun part of the 18th century. I focus on the mid-1760s to the mid-1790s. And it's actually because of dress. There's a lot that's happening there in terms of change in terms of political change and empirical change and social and cultural and consumer change that happens at the end of the 18th century, um, industrial as well. Um, but one of the the big parts of change for me setting aside the dress is is print culture. and that really underlines what this book is about. So the revolution in print culture is one of the defining reasons why, I start in the 1760s and the mid 1760s. Um, But also this is when, and this is, it's been termed, going back to print culture, it's been termed the, the, you know, the glorious age or um, of print culture itself. But this is when satirists are really, they're focusing on dress. And that's something that this book brings out. And dress itself has, has a moment. I'm not going to say that the first half of the period is of the, of the century is entirely stagnant because that would not be fair. But in the 1760s, something starts to shift and the silhouette starts to shift and everything starts to rise and to swell and to get bigger and to get slightly stranger and to move and just overall the proportions change. And it's this sort of culmination um, around the 1780s, which then tapers down in that um penumbula of fashion um that tapers down into what we now think of as the regency period so what hillary davidson has termed the long regency so starting in the 1790s we get into that really classical clingy what we then in more you know common terms think of as the jane austen silhouette uh so that's that was the period that i was really fixated on and It was a couple of garments in particular that all seemed to work together and that all seemed to almost come as a pair or as a recipe. Um, It came as a set. And that's what really defined the the temporal parameters of the book.
2: Mm. That
1: makes a lot of sense.
2: Um, certainly the prettiness of the book, the images included within it, definitely give a sense for these proportions getting very strange. Um, and I think I'm definitely going to ask you about at least some of the examples you discuss to look at this a bit further. But before we get into that, um, can we talk a bit about methods? Because you've, mm-hmm. you've mentioned print culture, and I think it is worth kind of highlighting even more. Any sort of fashion history obviously has, I think, really interesting methodological questions. So can you tell us a bit about the methodology you used and
1: especially the sort of innovative aspects of it? Mm -hmm. So the methodology for me, it's has always been sort of a trifecta of surviving artifacts when they exist, uh, when they survive images. um, So traditionally looking at painted portraiture has been a common, um, common place to look, but also pastels, et cetera, but also prints. And I'm going to come back to that. And then, of course, archival sources. So I use um, a lot of account books. I look at a lot of newspapers. I look at a lot of when existing letters um, that talk about it. The things I'm looking at don't necessarily always show up, however, in these traditional um, pillars of, of source material. So they don't necessarily, you don't talk about your pants necessarily or you don't paint you know you you don't paint yourself in your pants in an oil portrait that's formal. Not that they actually not women didn't wear pants um, and by pants I'm using the British term for underwear. Uh, but it's this I'm looking at the peripheral and the ephemeral and the potentially slightly more intimate garments which don't necessarily show up in traditional sources. So what's where possible? um one of the innovations of of i think this book and of my research methodology is really giving satirical prints their day and within dress history satirical prints have been effectively looked at as a taboo they've been looked at as the 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 part of a visual culture that isn't appropriate source material for understanding dress, because they've been looked at as too exaggerated or unrealistic, and sometimes, sometimes those um, those observations are correct, and it entirely depends on the artist. So, if I'm looking at, for example, you know, by the turn of the century, Rollinson or Crookshanks, which is another reason I don't go as late, um, I don't actually get to the turn of the century, is they're no longer interested in dress. They're interested in bodies. They're interested in movement. They have a different set of parameters that they're that they're working with. That they're interested in portraying. But during my period, you see absolutely wonderful um, engagement with uh, with clothing and the use of clothing on purpose and to to make a point to. To be the the butt of the joke, to to get something across to a viewer, and so what I do methodologically is to sort of marry dress history, material culture studies, um, and art history all together, and to to have all of them sort of an equal balance, but to really highlight and um, I think champion satirical prints as a unsung Um, source material for dress
2: history. Mm, That's a great way to put it so thank you for taking us through that. Getting then into the garments um, themselves these strange silhouettes um, especially with the contrast later on of as you said colloquially we think of it as the Jane Austen silhouette um, a lot of these strange proportions are created through underwear accessories things that you then drape kind of the outer garment over. And yet we see this kind of relatively quickly go away with Jane Austen. We certainly don't think of strange underwear making unusual shapes in that period. So why was it, do you think, that kind of underwear, undergarments, accessories went from being kind of not the focus of fashion to being so emblematic of it during the period you look at?
1: So you can argue, or as as other underwear scholars will argue that underwear has always been (laughs) always been there and it's always been a focus. So if we if we jump back a couple of centuries, you have women in bodies and farthingales. Sarah Bendel's recent book on this is absolutely fantastic. Um she brings us through the early modern period. And it is always about, at least for for women, it's about these structural garments which define the silhouette. And so what I'm interested in, um, is that, and this continues into the 18th century. So apologies for the, for the quick brief underwear history. Um, (laughs) but you go from farthingales and bodies, which create that, you know, think, think Queen Elizabeth in your head, um, which create that kind of rounded, um, almost circle spherical, um, skirts on top. Um, and then that very long body, um, which is you know, artificially long women didn't have longer torsos in in the early modern period, you know, than they do in other centuries. Um, but again, this is a, a trick of dress. This is what dress is creating this illusion. And by the, things do sort of narrow when you get the mantua at the turn of the at the, you know from the seventeenth century um, and into the eighteenth. So it does narrow a little bit. And then you see what I think most of us think of as the eighteenth century silhouette or most commonly is thought of as the 18th century silhouette are the really wide skirts that are created by hoops and panniers. So hoops come in in the 1710s and they just sort of continue to get wider and they get wider as you're more formal. So if you're going to court, that is when they're at their widest. Um, But that's what we think of when we go to an exhibition um, specifically that has to do with elite dress. That's the kind of showstopper um, court dress that we can all sort of visualize in our heads. And there have been some fantastic examples recently. So Crown to this summer at HRP, um, Historic royal Palaces at Kensington, and uh, the show at Buckingham Palace um, by Anna Reynolds was also absolutely lovely, showing off some garments from Bath. So we all are familiar with that really wide silhouette. But effectively in the 60s, the wide silhouette um, sort of panniers and hoops don't disappear, they're still there. And in court dress, they're still worn um, until George IV finally says, in the next century, you can you can stop wearing something that's effectively outdated in terms of fashionability. But what I'm interested in is this transition to to a more serpentine silhouette, which which happens effectively at the end of every century. Um, we, can, we can kind of track this change. So if you jump a century ahead, you have the um, sort of S-curvy um, 70s and 80s with the bustle um, and that kind of silhouette getting into the Gibson girl look um, if we're, again, a century ahead. And again, the century before, the hips are once again narrowing into not necessarily serpentine, but a more more s curvy kind of shape. But in my period, so looking at at this um, at this couple of these couple of decades, you see the introduction of a couple of new styles of outer dress. Um, you see looped garments coming in, and effectively they're supported underneath by they're not by panniers, but actually by what are termed at the time cork rumps. So those come in in the 70s. They're a version of hip, bat, hip pads, which have also, or bum rolls, which again, have a longer heri- uh, period. But with with this period, we see um, we see that sort of concentration of, of this new silhouette. Um, the stays rise and become more busty. Um, there's an emphasis no longer on the hips, but on the backside. And that's when we get this, really eye-catching and, um, oftentimes bombastic silhouette, which is at its peak in the eighties. So that's what interests me is this, um, which is the, the cover of the book and you see it, it's the first image in the book that, um, I would say rather, I don't know, is unsurprising or no, is surprising potentially for, for readers, um, maybe not with a cover image, but it's, it's not what you generally think of as an 18th century silhouette. Um, and what's interesting to me is that that silhouette is entirely manipulated, not by plastic surgery or, you know, women starving themselves or tight lacing, you know, into completely uncontrollable, uncomfortable positions. But it's created purely through dress and underwear and accessories on top that create this illusion of a different type of body and a different type of silhouette.
2: So with that fabulous sort of contextualization um, and I suppose in some ways a teaser for what I'm going to ask you next, can I ask you to tell us about some of these accessories, underwear, et cetera, that create these illusions, starting with the rise and the fall of the handkerchief or
1: the handkerchief in 1786? Yep. Um, I I might do one, one final, not teaser, whatever the opposite of teaser is. (laughs) (laughs) Follow up, follow up. Um, Just, and this is going to go into the handkerchief, I I, I promise. Um, But with that, the first image is an image that's at the National, um, sorry, not the National, uh, the New York Public Library. And it was owned by Horace Walpole. And it was a it's a watercolor, and it's the first image which shows not someone dressed in clothing, but it's a nude. And it's by Mary Hoare. Um, it's a gift from Walpole's sister. And what Walpole does in his fashion is to send it to Lady Orsery um, and then says, I'm going to get it printed by his pr- uh, private secretary, Kergate, who's also a printer. And he thinks it will do very well. And what she does is that she sends it back or she sends a traced copy of it back and she's added clothes. And the nude is then effectively, quote, feathered. Uh, he thanks her for feathering his lady, feathering his Venus. So thinking about that silhouette in mind, which if you, if you have a look, um, if you look for the modern Venus on the um, NeuroPublic Library's uh, digital digital collections. Um, or if you open the first two pages of my book, you will find this image there, but you'll see a woman with rather, I'm going to say enormous, I think that's fair, uh, breasts and, and say at the same time backside. So you see these completely out of proportion figures. And again, now I'm transitioning into the handkerchief. So we'll put, we'll put the bum to the side for now. Um, we'll but get there. We'll get there. I promise. Um, but thinking just about her bust, it's, it, you know, it almost looks like an out of date. It looks, you know, it looks from a modern image like plastic surgery. Um, that's the kind of proportions that are on this woman. And what that was made of is not um not plastic surgery um but instead a combination of stays which by the 1780s have risen slightly and effectively become more curvy so stays throughout and stays are um uh the 18th century terms for corsets so we go from bodies to stays to corsets that's your terminology sort of by the century um, But at that time, stays had been conical throughout the first 60 or 70 years of the century. And in the 70s, we start to see a shift. In the 60s, we start to see this shift. And by the 80s, that shift is really pronounced effectively. Stays start to become a little bit higher at the waist. So, you know, going up from the hips, not, again, not Jane Austen high. We're not in the Regency yet, but just a touch higher but they really become more thrusty, more um, almost like a racer back uh, or kind of a halter. Um, they they have a bit of a shift in proportion, which gives emphasis to the bust line. So what that's doing is pushing up the bust line or pushing forward the bust um, in a way. So that's what's happening underneath. Um, so just keeping keeping that in mind. But in 1774, the ban on imported um, cotton is repealed, and that's when we see um, the British who have British women who have wanted muslin for <laughs> for a very long time and who've often imported it or smuggled it in illegally. Um, now they're going to wear it, and they're going to love wearing it um, because Indian muslin um, is better than what they were able to get, which is why it was originally banned for so many decades. Um, So we see the handkerchief, which again is a garment that has been worn, also called a neckerchief, also then called a bouffant. Um, So they take the French term in the 70s, and again, this has been worn throughout the period, throughout the century, but at this point it becomes prominent, and muslin helps it get there. So it's the quality of the textile that they're interested in, Um, and like other iterations, it's the idea of keeping white white. It's the idea of keeping this very fine, effectively translucent, effectively see-through piece of material, um, which could have white work on it. It could have embroidery. Um, You do get handkerchiefs, which are printed and are commemorative, um, but those were probably not necessarily worn (laughs) quite in the same way. Um, But you have this textile, which is very delicate, very translucent, and because of clear starching and because of washing and laundry methods, it has that elevated status, that elevated, you know, physical status on the body. So it's effectively an iteration, something similar to a ruff, um, if we again go back a couple of centuries. But that idea of this very delicate white textile, which requires a lot of labor and requires a lot of money, and is reflected. Um, it's not as much money as as lace, but it's reflected in this consumption and this conspicuous consumption, uh, you know, of fashionability at the time. So mm. you have you have all of, you know the the excitement around muslin and the excitement excitement around this textile, but pairing that with the transition of the si- of the silhouette and also, we're in balloon mania. So by 1784, Lunardi has has gone up in his hot air balloon and Britain becomes obsessed with it. France becomes obsessed with it. It enters clothing. It enters everywhere. Um, you have, you know, it's images that are all over the place. You get lots of different garments that are called either balloon hats or they're a la Lunardi. Um, so you get lots of references uh, to to this kind of elevation and this spherical world. At the same time, hair is becoming spherical, the bum is becoming spherical. So it almost makes sense in a silhouette to have this balance between a larger bum, which is happening, um, so a larger sort of cork rump or bum at the backside, and then you need the larger bust line to make that serpentine, effectively Hogarth line of beauty um, enacted in real life. So that's our, Kind of curve that we're working on, mm. which uh, for me you, there's lots of wonderful, absolutely fantastic commentary on this. So it's called a merry thought. It's uh, referred to as something that you know hides the delicious swell. It's very flirtatious. It's very, it's not necessarily to do with modesty because effectively it is see through. It amplifies the proportions of the bosom, so it doesn't actually show more more decolletage but it but it suggests it it's all very suggestive um, and it also comes out with absolutely fantastic satirical prints satirists can't get enough of the silhouette this is the powder pigeon silhouette or it's what um, is termed the powder pigeon silhouette that's a term that is first used in 85 um, and then becomes much more prominent through the 19th century and through 19th century, um, sort of costume historians reinforcing it. But for me, it's this micro history of one single accessory, which arguably has a fairly short lifespan in the way that they're wearing it, um, the way that they're using it. Um, but it's a way for me to ask why do we, um, as as methodological, why do we, as dress historians, prefer a portrait showing you know this this accessory being worn because if you and they do survive in museum collections but obviously they survive flat they survive you know they are kept flat Um, they don't have they're one of those examples of you know a lifeless body they don't have the body wearing them anymore to to demonstrate how they would have been worn and how they would have been maintained especially with all the starch so for me it's asking why do we prefer the portrait over the satirical print of the woman who can't reach her bowl of soup because her absolutely crazy handkerchief is too large that she can't put the spoon to her mouth or (laughs) that she can't reach the table. And Mm. you have this series of prints where a woman can't kiss her, her bow because she can't reach him or Mm. You know, all of this kind of physical space and physical distancing. I'm effectively the 18th century was great for social distancing, and I know this <laughs> was something that came up during the pandemic. Of the 18th century had you covered?
2: Mm-hmm. It
1: would have been fine. <laughs> social distance was part of it, but for for this moment, it's it's thinking about how how large and amplified um, uh, that one accessory can get. And for me, thinking about that relationship between an accessory and its satirical image and how that call and response um, really thrives. And mm-hmm. it's something that happens also, and I'm, I promise I'm almost done about the handkerchief, but <laughs> it it also happens in text. So um, like many people who work in the the mid-1780s, we're very fi- uh, familiar with the writings of German traveler Um, Sophie Van La Roche, and she's wonderful in her, in her diaries um, and her letters and correspondence. Um, But at one point she goes to the theater and she describes how annoyed she is and how ridiculous this was that a couple of women came in a with hats that that were huge and hair that was too high, which as we've all been to the theater, we could understand that would be annoying and frustrating. but in addition to their hair, which is the usual point of commentary or, or mocking, um, it's also that they have their handkerchiefs puffed up to their noses, and so they come in. Everyone sees them. It causes a stir. They sit down, and then a couple of the cast members quickly run off stage, and they come back on, effectively mocking the dress. And they're they're in you know they've thrown on some petticoats, and they also have these handkerchiefs that are you know, covering effectively their faces and they wave and they have this call and response and they make the women so uncomfortable that they leave. So again, it's something that's not just happening in satire and it's not just happening on the satirical page, but you also see it through writing through, you know, through different avenues, which for me, going back to that idea of methodology, it's one of the garments that sort of brings it
0: all together.
2: No, absolutely. There's so many different things there all coming together in the one bit of cloth being treated in such a particular way. I was going to ask about the cork rump a bit later, but I think we're kind of on that topic now. (laughs) Yeah. So can we talk about kind of the other side, I suppose, of that silhouette? Um, Mm -hmm. And you've talked a bit about kind of how it's appearing in these same sorts of visual representations. You also talk about in the book that there's some tensions around that these representations are discussing around the cork rump so can we add that into our kind of over-the-top roundness going on with these silhouettes?
1: So yeah so if, if we move below the waist so if you have the top half which is quite bust heavy you you need the balance and and that's when we get the cork rump and the cork rump is I believe the shortest lived um article in this in this book um, it has a really quick uh, time frame. Um, but it also has a very interesting caveat um, in that I've only found two surviving um, that I know of in the world. Neither of them are made of cork. Um, one is stuffed with feathers, um, which is in Finland, and one is stuffed with horsehair, which is in Manchester. There is, I believe, a doll or two that have these kind of bum rolls that have these um, appendages. But often it doesn't exist materially. So we kind of need to push that out as a normal source of dress history. It also incredibly, you know, potentially frustratingly doesn't exist that much out of the satirical realm. Most of the discussion about the cork rump, and this includes rumps, bums, and false... um, uh, I can, I can see the word in my head. It is French. It means bum. And I cannot remember what it's <laughs> named is. And I'm not I going, suppose? No, it does have derriere is one of them. Mm. Um, it will come to me as soon as, as soon as we stop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but effectively you don't see it in account books. So account books of the time, I haven't been able to find it. It's not in Milner's advertisements or records. It's not, in letters, it's it's sort of just not there, which again is a mystery, and it's perhaps there somewhere, and I just haven't scoured enough of the earth to find it. Um, but effectively, this is a garment that almost only exists in the satirical record, and that is in newspapers that are satirizing it um, or or deriding it, um, but also satirical prints. And a lot of these prints, again, they're the they're the familiar ones of the 1770s and the 1780s. So it comes in in the 1770s, and it comes in with a bang. It comes in with Chloe, um, and then is quickly picked up, and her image is effectively everywhere across multiple print sellers. Um, sort of a similar, you know, hallmarks of fashionability at this point. In satirical prints, you have effectively a formula for how to make how to make a satirical fashionable woman. And she has massive hair, tiny feet and a really large rump, Um, small waist. You know, the, the, the normal idea of a fashionable woman with some effectively exaggerated proportions. And what's interesting to me is you have. In the 1770s, they don't know how to they don't know how to <laughs> they don't know how to draw it. They don't know how to resemble it. They don't know how to um, to display it. Uh, in that we see it floating often, so it's often referred to in water. There are some really um, brutal uh, satirical prints of. There's one in particular where a woman is floating and everyone else around her is drowning in a really graphic, quite you know, actually disturbing way, but she's just merrily bobbing along. Um, so you have a lot of influences with water because, it's, uh, because of its name, cork rumps. And one of the ways to contextualize that is to think about cork jackets, which have been at the time also, um, they've had an advertising war or Britain, London in particular, has seen an advertising war around who was the inventor of the cork jacket. And there's a, very close window of when the cork jacket is invented and this advertising war takes place, which had a lot of public demonstrations, which uses cork. So it's a, it's a waistcoat with, with cork actually in it. Um, And that's our first version of a life preserver. Um, But when we think of it in cork with women, you often see it women are accused of witchcraft because they're floating Mm -hmm. and the women of Billingsgate Mm -hmm. think that, you know, You floated down the Thames. You must be a witch. Ah, you have a cork rump. It's all understandable. Mm. (laughs) You're not a witch. Um, you see just this lack of, you know, understanding you're accused of, there's some great, uh, effective diatribes on husbands who have been conned into the woman that they married. So there's one, there's one particular gentleman who writes this, um, piece for the newspaper saying that I thought I married this girl. And then after our marriage, she started taking everything off and it was false, this false, that, you know, the eyebrows came off, the stays came off, the cork rump came off. And what, what had I married instead? And, you know, that is, that is a classical trope, which, which we've seen before we've seen earlier in the century. Um, but there's a lot of tension around this, this drawing attention to a, a you know, a sexual area of the body, um, and how they do it is, is quite interesting in that you see just this grappling with the not understanding. You have it everyone is the is the befumbled husband who hasn't quite caught up with the actual fashion yet. So there's a series of prints by Sheridan um, who literally throw women into the water um, who uh who have them bobbing around, you know, thrown around on shuttlecocks. And again, it's that call and response. So there's a lot of tensions. There's there's always tensions in satirical prints, um, but this is something that I think takes initially takes the the British public by surprise, mm. and um, and then is taken complete advantage of in terms of its comedy value, um, and in terms of its impact, and in terms of you know how it is then used on the satirical page.
2: Mm. No, absolutely. Thank you for taking us through the above-waist and below-waist elements of that particularly exaggerated silhouette. It,
1: it does become a real by the 1780s after there's a effectively a hiatus during the American War of Independence um when satirists are no longer focused on fashion as much as they perhaps were before mm. but by 1784 we're back, and <laughs> by that point, they've they've figured out what it is, and now you see actual representations of bums, which the term changes, um, and you actually see delineations of bums as they effectively, of the two that survive, you can see how those survive, um, and you can they're they're effectively the same garment um, that's represented in a couple of prints um, in the 80s. Mm. So. No, there's, it's, it's, it's one of my, I I know I shouldn't have favorites, but it is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Although I would, I would just love to, if someone could find it for me in an account book, that would just Mm -hmm. make me really happy because I've, I've searched and the (laughs) only, it's one of the only letters is actually from Betsy Sheridan and Betsy Sheridan tells her sister to take some of the stuffing out of her rump because it's no longer in fashion. So they're they're becoming less fashionable. So you better you know take some stuffing out. But again, in in sartorial recycling, it's effectively a pillow. Um, not quite, you know. I'm I'm. It's not just, but it's effectively it's a cushion or it's a pillow. So it makes sense that these are useful materials, which once it goes out of fashion, a it's can be you know depending on the size pretty large, but also useful that you can use elsewhere. So. It's one of those things that only survives in a non-material sense.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I would love to ask you about another example of an exaggerated silhouette um, item, though this one is less about uh, below or above the waist and more about below or above the neck, if we can go all Mm -hmm. the way up to the top of the head. Um, Can you explain for us what, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, kalash? Yep. Cool. Okay. Okay. so if you could briefly describe a collage and then not just kind of what it does for fashion, but I was fascinated by your discussion in the book about the role it plays in increasing female mobility and social mobility.
1: Mm-hmm. So if we are at the, again, we're in the 70s, we're in the 80s. And in the 70s, that's when hair peaks to its tallest. So that's when either um, there are wig makers Um, but most often you get women wearing, um, a combination of their hair on a cushion, um, which then has false hair added to it. And it's, um, it's, the volume is created with pomatum and powder, uh, effectively it's, it's very similar to dry shampoo. It's a great version of dry shampoo. So in the 70s you get tall hair. and in the 80s, again, by the 80s, we think of all of the spheres and the orbs. Hair does the same, it shortens again, but it kind of poofs out um, and, and forms another one of these orbs. But effectively all of these hairstyles, which we commonly think of, again in that you know stereotypical 18th century woman you know image in our minds, they while they do have they do have hats, and hats are worn, and they do have caps, and caps are always worn. Um, one very clever invention is this um, accessory called a calash, which comes from the name calash. so it comes from the French, um, and it's the name in France of a um, jointed um, carriage top. So, there's also kalashes in um, in Britain at the time, so it's this jointed carriage top, effectively like a convertible. And the kalash as a garment is effectively a convertible hood for your hair. So it is a boned hood, and it's boned either with, it can be boned with baleen or whalebone, um, or it is boned with reeds um, or cane. And effectively, these arches... Um, make sure that the hair underneath and the style of the hair underneath doesn't get crushed so it gives you protection from the sun uh, protection from onlookers glances there is a little bit of rain protection i'm not saying it's gore-tex but it does have a touch of they're often oiled or um, uh, an oiled cotton so it does have you know a slight bit of rain protection, um, but effectively it forms this hooded but boned hooded um, hat that you can then either let fall down or you can keep it held up, up to you. So that's the that's the structure. Um, so it's this, again, when we're thinking about mobility, you have this jointed mobility of the actual garment itself. And a number of these survive because they lie flat, they're really fascinating. They do make an appearance again uh, in the 1820s and 1830s, but overall, the 18th century ones, you do have quite a lot that, that survive in museum collections. And it's one of those examples of, this is something quite interesting and therefore we'll keep it, um, or at least it falls into that category of accident of garments. Um, but in terms of women's mobility, Again, at this time, we're seeing uh, an increase in pleasure grounds, and this is pleasure gardens and urban planning. And rather than you know relying on a, you know sedan chairs and carriages and all of the other types, you know, horseback, etc., this is starting to be the age that women walking, or at least walking in very specific places is acceptable and is becoming fashionable so this is the promenade this is the you know shopping is just starting as a concept um and this is a very sensible piece of headwear to do that Uh, it's a very sensible piece of headwear to to actually promenade in to actually you know go about in I would say it's probably not a very sensible, and I have not tried this, it's not a sensible thing to do on a horse, to wear on a horse, because it's going to obviously catch the wind. And there's a lot of images of, um, of calashes catching the wind. There's a lot of concern satirically about women catching the wind. Um, And there's one really wonderful satirical uh, discussion of it where, um, a woman named Priscilla Tripp Street uh, in Philadelphia has asked her husband to put a bunch of rigging and sailing um, tools and techniques and devices onto her collapse so she won't blow away. Um, so there's a bit of joking with it, but it's also sort of considered mechanical at the time. But getting past that just initial idea of fashionable mobility um, or the scene, you know, it's another conveyance to see and be seen you also have the idea of visiting which really takes off so visiting is the we all know it's there we all know it happens there are the you know fantastic collections of calling cards in the british museum there are you know this it's just part of that social etiquette that we're all very well aware of um and we're all very well aware of it specifically around uh, the tea table and taking tea. And this is that fundamental, you know, cornerstone of women's social networking. So it's that the idea that tea and teacups and the whole ritual element of going and having tea and calling and leaving your card, all of that is this very, you know, fundamental um, especially by the late eighteenth century, fundamental you know means of women communicating, of women creating friendships, of creating social connections, potentially rising in social connections, making you know connections for their families, et cetera. Um and we're all very aware of the the tea part and the the interior side of this, um and potentially the you know, the calling cards, et cetera. But what fascinated me with the calash is actually thinking of it as the conveyance to and fro. And yes, a lot of women are still going to take a sedan chair, or they're still going to take, you know, potentially a carriage depending on their status, depending on where they're going, all of those things, all of those factors are still in play. But there are very few images or discussions of women of the actual transport. It's the to and fro part of it that I found really fascinating with the Kalash in particular. And I think it's something that this specific garment can actually highlight and can actually speak to. It's it's effectively this, you know, it's one of these missing pieces of, oh, wait, how did, how did she get there? And if she's able to walk and not be accused of being a loose woman, which again, maybe a century earlier, or depending on, you know. Even a couple of decades earlier, she may have been. So if we're already in this kind of walking is more acceptable and walking, depending on where you are, is considered fashionable, um, this is the garment that effectively is going to let you do that most successfully. And looking at satirical prints, there's a couple of them that are specifically about visiting, that specifically align visiting with, with the kalash. And one of them is the old um, the old maid's, mor- old maid's morning visit, uh, which has two older women in contrasting physiques, and they you know it's not like other satirical prints who that represent older women. They are quite cruel. They are quite pointed. They are not very forgiving, um, which is the general rule of how older demographics are are portrayed um, within the satirical world. But again, what interests me is that it's the clash that is identified specifically at this moment of visiting. And in the foreground of the print, you see um, effectively what looks like some sort of bonnet type thing and a flat hat, which looks like a bergeret. And in one of them, there's a kitten, um, sorry, a cat having kittens or, or, you know, nursing her kittens, and the other has a spaniel urinating on it. Um, in that idea that they've been, they've been thrown away. They're no longer the right tools, and now these women are using calashes instead. We also see this in another print, which is the Spruce Sportsman. Which, if you're familiar, if you're within the world of 18th century women or material culture or just general history, you've probably come across this print because it's the cover of Amanda Vickery's um, book um, at home. So that's the cover. So everyone sort of has that image in their head. Um, What interests me with that print uh, of the Spruce Sportsman, um, it also has the morning visit in its title. Again, it's around the T so there is tea being made. Tea hasn't effectively disappeared from importance. So tea's being made in the background. One woman is entering and to see her friend. Uh, the gentleman who is who's part of this ensemble is looking up at her hair and looking up at her hat, but it's that part of the action that's being portrayed isn't the fact that they're already there and they're already sitting and they're already drinking tea. The action that's portrayed is her entering and her wearing her kalash while she's entering. So, you know, and clearly she will uh, take it off imminently, but it hasn't happened yet. And within the world of visiting, visiting isn't often represented like that. So, or at least as an action. So this was my, or what really fascinated me about the idea of the kalash as a, an ability to extend women's networks and to facilitate that into by the 19th century, again, visiting is, you know, the norm that continues, for, you know, for decades of how women network with each other.
2: Mm. No, really interesting to think about those, as you said, the in-between moments um, and those sort of transitions and to identify this as an aspect of it. I'd like to ask you about another um sort of outdoors, I suppose, accessory, Uh, this one being, I think, probably less obscure, but just because we're aware of it doesn't necessarily mean we've we've thought about it. So can you tell us about fur muffs and why they were so significant in this century? Again, as you've been discussing throughout, both in terms of what people actually did and about the thoughts and perceptions of this fashion and women who wore them?
1: So fur muffs have been worn by men and women. Um, at this point, they're not—they um, are not purely a, a women-only, female-only garment. Um, but they've been worn in Britain since the 1570s. Um, so that so they have quite a long—they have quite a long survival period, and they are still worn. I had—I had one as a child, um, which was great. Uh, so, you know, they, they are still, they're still a thing. Um, you can still buy, you can still buy muffs. Um, but effectively in this period, what's interesting is that fur muffs and the fur trade have such a significant impact. So this is one of those moments when fashion is really at the heart of a much bigger story, which we don't necessarily think fashion we don't necessarily think of fashion being there or being part of this. Um, but for the fur trade, uh, that is effectively um, why the Seven Years' War is fought, is for control of the fur trade, um, specifically in Canada um, and North America. So you have this absolutely massive moment um, in the decades prior of the Seven Years' War where uh, british the British want to take control of this over the French, uh, the British um, Hudson Bay Company is not, you know, wants more territory, wants more, um, more access, wants to be uninhibited um, in its in its pursuit of fur, because fur is historically um, and still at the time incredibly expensive. It's incredibly profitable. It's incredibly luxurious. So, over the course, again, drawing back from the early modern period into the 18th century. Originally, fur was um, legislated as to who could wear it, who could wear what kind. So if we're thinking sumptuary legislation, um, which does fall out. um, So by by this point, sumptuary legislation is long gone, but it's still very expensive. It's still very exclusive. Um, But the Seven Years' War is that turning point where fur starts to effectively become more accessible. So again, a lot of this book, um, and this is because of effectively the focus of the book, um, because of what I'm looking at, most of the, the garments that I'm talking about, the women that I'm talking about, have enough money. They're in that genteel or above class. They you know, they have access to these types of, of luxuries, or at least these types of accessories um, a little bit more broadly. But with the with the Seven Years' War, um, one interesting repercussion, which isn't the focus of this book, is actually the fact that because the French lose the fur trade, French milliners are very clever and they start pushing feather muffs instead because they can get feathers, they can dye feathers, and they make feather muffs fashionable. So in the 1760s, you actually have a brief period where... Feather muffs become really in fashion, and a lot of um, you have these diatribes in, in newspapers saying that women are being unpatriotic um, in Britain because because they're not, they're wearing these French-influenced feather muffs. When no, we actually have the fur trade. Why aren't you wearing fur muffs? So that's that's what's happening in the 60s. By the 70s, women have started again wearing fur muffs. Um, Again, it doesn't ever go entirely out of fashion. Um, but with fur muffs, you you see this crescendo, and so they've they've acquired the fur trade. and after the the small hiccup of of the feather muff, you know, fashion is resolved and kind of dissipates, uh, then fur really becomes, you know, the thing to wear it has political allegiances. So if we think of Fox, um, and his supporters by 84, you have, um, Fox for muffs being worn in support, um, of the Whigs. Um, but effectively you see this tr- crescendo, which doesn't actually stop in my period. So this is the, this is potentially the one, the one garment, which by the by the 90s has become even bigger so while the rest of the silhouette becomes more in that column you know style the 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 effectively classical style of the regency the firm muff gets even more enormous um but that's 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 a that's a point you know down the road um in the uh In the 60s, I'm sorry, in the 70s and in the 80s, we start to see lots and lots of advertising and we start to see lots and lots of um, interest in fur muffs as a retail business. There are so fur muffs, especially which for 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 British um, in particular, for British English speakers, um, there's a lot of humor around fur muffs contemporarily today. Um, it is one of the things where I tell people, this is what I work on. And I tend to get a polite giggle or, or a kind of smirk. Um, and what I'm referring to is the, is the double entendre to, uh, women's private parts, which was also in effect. It was a, it was a joke at the time. Um, it was first published as such in 1699. So again, the 18th century has, has a similar sense of humor, um, but that has been an argument of why we don't see um, fur muffs in portraiture as much, that we don't see um, that they kind of lose fashion and they become sort of more um, sexually promiscuous uh, or or connected with the sexually promiscuous, especially when actresses start to wear them. Again, it's that broadening ability to, to buy them. Um, however, my interest in fur muffs is actually the retail side which is an unexpected avenue which this book took which i'm really thrilled about um because there's two um there are two milliners who start as Millners, and they start as partners died and scribe and they start as business partners and then and they start in the millinery trade and as the decades progress and as the years progress they become effectively fur dealers and you see over the course of their retail history, how the millinery business takes a backseat. So originally, fur muffs are effectively sold seasonally, which makes sense. They're sold in the autumn um, for the winter. But as, as this goes along, you see the rest of their stock or the rest of their you know, advertising for their stock of other bits of millinery effectively disappear. They have quite a dramatic um, retail history together. They break up as partners, and then um, one of them gets a new partner, and then eventually that that partner is they're tried for treason. It's very dramatic. It should become a film about the fur muff business. Um, but again, this is for me with women wearing them. They just have this almost intensity in that there's this continual. You have to get it cleaned. Have you? every year it's it's sort of like dry clean dry cleaning a coat have you have you gotten it cleaned have you um have you gotten enlarged oh this is the new fur that's in fashion have you thought about it um and it is just a a marker of fashionability which has this fascinating history because you finally see the british fur trade take off as the british fur trade wanted to take off Um, and this idea that women are finally embracing um what they what they should deem as this elite luxury which while it is still an elite luxury is is going to a slightly wider demographic um than a couple of hundred years before Hmm.
2: really interesting to see how that changes over time and especially as you said it is one that still exists right unlike some of the others we've discussed Um, a similar sort of contrast i'd like to draw with the next one uh because A bunch of the things we've talked about so far have, as you said, kind of had particular class signifiers, particular economic aspects that mean there is some amount of kind of conspicuous consumption purchasing involved in them. And yet in the book, you also talk about the silk muff that, okay, yeah, probably has some expense involved, but you also talk about how it was incredibly expressive, symbolic, personal in ways that some of the other garments that we've discussed so far perhaps were not. So how did the silk muff have these qualities?
1: So the silk muff um, in the in the world of muffs you have fur muffs, you have feather muffs and you have silk muffs. And we we don't often think of the silk muff. The silk muff is is almost you know it's it's lighter weight, it's not going to keep you warm, which the fur muff would do much more effectively. Um, it doesn't necessarily have that status symbol. It doesn't have the price tag. It doesn't have, um, it doesn't have the status that a fur muff does or even a feather muff. Uh, but it is incredibly personal because it's a place where women can often make their own. Um, and while women do make their own feather muffs, um, uh, not not so much fur muffs, but they do make their own feather muffs. Um, but it's really silk muffs where we see this kind of personal haptic engagement with um, with embroidery, um, with what they're doing. And uh, one of the, um, you know, you'd only need, you know, quite a small amount of silk. Again, you need to be able to afford the silk and then justify buying the silk to wear this accessory. So again, it does still have have a... Um, economic threshold to it, um, but one of my, um, you know, I think favorite favorite quotations or favorite archival finds in this book uh, is a letter written by this girl named Frances Mabel Sparrow, and she writes it to her cousin Henny. And Henrietta or Henrietta Pennington, also known as Henny, lives in Kensington gravel pits, which. Isn't quite the most fashionable part of London, but it's still London. Um, Today, it would be a very nice address. Um, So, you know, not quite pure West End, but again, still better. Um, But Francis lives in Spath, which is Spath and not Bath. Um, And Spath is this tiny village or hamlet, which is about 120 miles north of London, and. They have this classic uh connection um correspondence. So they have this classic shopping by correspondence and discussions through correspondence about fashion and about embroidery. So this is when embroidery comes in as and in a very non-satirical. The silk muffs are my very non-satirical part of part of this book. Um but uh it's, Henry um Francis writes to writes to Henrietta saying that she's just learned embroidery and she's quick in love with it can you send me some patterns and can you send me some patterns for a muff and if we're thinking about embroidery at the time so again this is something that's very commonplace it is it's part of women's education it's part of what we would expect women to be doing when you're actually embroidering garments pockets are usually the thing you start with um Well, the first garments because they're hidden and they're private, and no one is going to see them. Um, So pockets are worn under your skirts. They are tie on. They hold a lot of things. I highly recommend um, Arian Fenato's and Barbara Berman's book if you're interested in pockets. Um, But if you think about a muff, a muff is visible and a muff is on display. So the fact that Francis is requesting patterns for a muff suggests that she's confident enough in her embroidery skills that she wants to see, you know, for people to see this and for it to be seen. Uh, We also see this connection with um, Mrs. Delaney, who, again, most, many, many people from the 18th century, or not from the 18th century, many people who are 18th centuryists will be familiar with her. Um, Mary Delaney was incredibly prolific in her art in her life, um, with a fantastic group of friends and she is the one who does paper flowers. She does, um, uh, lots of different types of, of art and craft work that we are familiar with today and her letters survive very extensively. Um, and Mary Delaney was Frances Mabel Sparrow's aunt's aunt. So there's a connection between the two of them. Um, and they do—they do have a correspondence, and Mary Delaney becomes quite fond of Francis. Um, but within Mary Delaney's life and her work on muffs and her work on embroidery, uh, she has a connection with her sister and Granville. And she, at one point, she makes a muff um, for Anne that she's—that she's thinking of Anne, a, a, you know, about when she's making it. And someone pays her a compliment and says, you know, "Oh, I love that." And usually, she said, you know. I would have given it as a, you know, as a gift to this other woman, but I think of it as a sort of emblem of me and you. And it effectively, embroidery has, as many as many scholars on embroidery and needlework have established, embroidery has this very um, connective property and this idea of imbuing meaning into stitching and and intention and um, purpose, which is different than, you know stitching to to make clothing or to make, um, you know, more constructional stitching. But this idea that with embroidery, we see these really personal acts of expression, which can be quite symbolic, um, you know, of friends, of sisters, of of your cousin, etc., of whoever, you know, you're close with, um, which that's one of the factors that makes silk muffs, um, you know, really personal. And there's there's a couple of them in the book, and one of them or two of them have, I would argue, the same. They were made by the same hand so that they were, um, we see two muffs over probably a couple of years apart. Um, one looks very 70s, one looks very 80s um, in its embroidery style and in its, um, in its uh, taste and decoration. Um, and we can actually see her improvement and we can see the maker. She has a couple of signatures, which is why I think it's the same woman. Um, but you can see how she's improved from one to the other and how her taste has changed and how, you know, her technique has changed. Um, so that is one of the facets of how the silk muff is really personal um, and quite expressive. But the other for me is the, uh, the silk, the, the phenomenon, which again is very short lived, which are silk prints and silk prints are, images they're stipple engravings um, that are printed on silk rather than paper and they start in 1782 and effectively they are part of this fashion for for stipples at the time so if we're thinking of um, Angelica Kaufman and that set so a lot of her work um, is made into silk as it's also you know put on ceilings and in furniture and it's considered this very appropriate often allegorical often quite soft pastels that is good for decoration and that is good for effectively appropriate um, for so women's accessorizing and it's contributing to that you know rise in interest in the classical and rise in the interested interest in the antique so we're getting into into neoclassicism um, but with silk prints for me what's really interesting is that they've When they've been discussed before they were originally discussed as um needlework painting um, patterns the idea that they were printed so that women could then do needlework over them and use use the the print as a pattern for their needlework um, which is another popular um, creation at this time but with silk muffs and with three silk muffs that are in the museum of fine arts in boston uh, that's where I first came across them. And that's where I was able to first argue that silk prints are not, in fact, just for for needlework paintings as they had p- previously been considered, but actually an active part in fashion. And I was able to find their publishers, find who was making them and have um, you know found many more since and have started actually collecting them. They're a little bit of an obsession. um, They're they're one of these these things that have really stuck with me. Um, uh, As as someone who's very interested in textiles and interested in fashion and interested in prints, they effectively have all of those things coming together. But with, um, with silk prints on muffs, which they were attached to muffs, they were also attached to work baskets. But when they're specifically put on muffs, what interests me about that is that it is a lot cheaper to buy a silk print than it is to be able to afford a commission, you know, to commission a portrait by Angelica Kaufman or even, you know, potentially a print on paper. But this idea that you're able to personalize, but you're also able to patronize, um, often another woman's art, I find really fascinating. So if we think of the silk muff as a space for artistic expression, we can see that with embroidery and then we can also see it as this space for patronizing um, effectively someone else's art and particularly women's art. So Mm -hmm. for me, that's where all of these elements come together.
2: Mm -hmm. No, it's a really interesting combination. Um, So thank you for taking us through it. On perhaps a less uplifting note, but still uh, very much one I think is worth discussing, tight lacing of corsets, making, you know, really quite extremely narrow waists is something that in a lot of ways we still have a legacy of today of uh, unrepresentative, inaccurate, frankly, often physically impossible ideas of kind of how small a woman's waist should be. So the sort of present day side of it, I think perhaps is better known than the debate's at the time, um, around this tight lacing and especially the iconography of it. So can you kind of take us back in time away from sort of today's perhaps inheritances of it and help us understand the tensions that the iconography was speaking to in the time period you're focused on?
1: Mm -hmm. So if we're, we all have those images in our head, we can all, it's constantly reinforced, um, this idea um, that women made their waists teeny, teeny, tiny, and satirical prints help us, you know, help construct that narrative. Because again, as established, satirical prints, the point, you know, part part of their visual language is that they get to play with the contours of the body. They're not necessarily concerned with having things be anatomically accurate. They have a different agenda. Uh, They have their own effective language, which you can learn to read and you can learn to understand and figure out what they're playing with and what they're not playing with or how they're doing it, Um, which is how I find satirical prints really helpful. But often we have that image of one, two, three, four people pulling at a woman's laces, which, you know, again, to modern minds thinks, ow, modern minds think that must be uncomfortable. And that's oppression. And that's the horrible way to, you know, way to live. And you must have been a fool for fashion to do so. And these are things which my students readily tell me in their essays, which I then try really hard to say, "Let's rethink about that. Let's reframe that." So it's something that's still very much alive and well, and it's very much alive and well, not in not only in the media representations, which I can get into. Um, but also also the 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 literature. Um, it's very easy for students, um for example, to misread. Um, for example, Valerie Steele's The Corset, which they often do, and that's that's not a slight to Valerie Steele, but it's something that it still has this, you know, not murky, but effectively, it takes a little bit of digging for someone to find historiography, which is coming out now, and secondary literature, which is coming out now, that's effectively working on setting, working against the the, the patriarchal narrative set in place by by the 19th century, which is where all of our conceptions of tight lacing kind of comes from. In that, yes, it's the bane of all evils, and women, you know, had medical issues because of it. Um, but if we look at the the prints that happen in in the 70s, um, particularly, and in the 80s, that's when we start to visualize tight lacing. Tight lacing or straight lacing has been a term that appears much, um, you know, longer or before the seventies, it doesn't start with the seventies, but this is the first time that we see it visualized. Um, so this is the first time that we can see it, you know, actually, you know, in a print in, in a satirical print. And there's a couple, there's two and it's debatable which one comes first. Um, or, you know, one of the, the dates is burned, um, burnished off, um, but you have John Collette's tight lacing or fashion before ease, and you also have the Darleys who do tight lacing as well, um, and they're both very similar. And effectively, these two prints start an iconographic tradition which we now see, and you know, on Bridgerton. Um, so these two prints we have kind of to thank for it um, for staying in our mindset, but. What's fascinating for me is thinking about what's happening with stays at the time. So, first off, um, with tight lacing, uh, or or breaking that myth of tight lacing, metal eyelets aren't invented until 1828. So that's the first key. It's it's very difficult to effectively tight lace as we think of tight lacing, as some people practice tight lacing, as was practiced. In the 19th century, by a very select few, um, because it is an actual practice. That's not to say that it doesn't exist entirely. Um, And it was probably practiced by a couple of women, or at least attempted to practice by a couple of women in the 18th century. I'm sure there were a few. Um, But effectively, to tight-lace a pair of stays that doesn't have metal eyelets, you're going to rip through the fabric. It's very, you will wear through it and effectively you know, break your stays um, because you won't be able to actually do the thing you're trying to do because you'll be applying too much force. Um, but you also have the change in shape which is happening at the time. And effectively during this period, te- um, stay makers make jumps technologically. So they're able to advance that if they have different placements of boning, they can achieve the same effect, but using less boning, which means less cost um, for them. So that's a positive for them in terms of innovation. Um, But also we see the, the shape starts to change. And there's specifically one invention, which or one innovation, which has sort of gone unnoticed until now, which are tape straps, which I'm getting very technical and I will get back to the iconography, (laughs) um, I promise, but bear with me. So tape straps on stays, traditionally you can have strapless stays. You can also have stays which have straps sewn in from the back um, panels and then are tied at the front. Um, Those are effectively the most traditional. Um, But during the, particularly the 80s, we actually see this development where tapes are used and they start effectively at the armpit. So halfway through the armpit and the tapes come forward and cross behind the back, like a racer back. So this is where my racer back analogy comes in, not in the compression of a modern day sports bra, but in that actual, the idea of almost like a racer back halter kind of effect, um, of Mm -hmm. if you bring the tapes across your shoulder blades, and across the back into a crisscross um, down the back. Effectively what that does is that lifts the bust. So it's this idea that you're actually supporting the bust significantly more with these tape straps, which was potentially necessary because again, we're getting a thrustier um, or a more prominent or forward facing emphasis of where we're shifting the bust line. So previously with conical, with a conical, it would have sort of compressed, um, and lifted quite evenly. Um, but now, again, very thinking very technically, it's almost like, you know, the effects of certain types of bras today of those that will push, um, push the bust in and push them forward. That's the effect Mm -hmm. we're creating, Mm -hmm. which then you also get uplift because it stays and, the wonderful thing about stays, corsets, et cetera, is that you have fantastic support. So you have great back support and great bust support. So we're just shifting where that support is emphasizing on the body. So with these tape straps, that's actually changing, as we saw with the handkerchief, and as we saw with that powder pigeon, which is, you know, very, ex- you know, ex- accentuated, um, but it's shifting the perception of how the body looks to the general public, which it's, you know, women know how this is happening. Stay makers know how this is happening. There's a great deal of material literacy um, to use Serena Dyer and Chloe Wigson Smith's um, phrase, but it is shifting the physical body type that is being seen every day. The tape straps are then either, they're often hooked on in the front and you often see you see little either remnants of hooks in rust stains, or you can actually see the hooks that are still there. So we get this much bustier, thrustier um, uh, silhouette in terms of where the bust is at during this time. And at the time, this is when these prints start to come out. And one of, I think, um, potentially my one of my you know longest um, or most familiar prints that has, has always captured my fascination is John Collette's Tight Lacing or Fashion Before Ease. And he's a student of Hogarth. He is absolutely fantastic. And he's wonderful at depicting and using clothing. He's very materially oriented. He's effectively, you know, similar in that way to John, um, to John Copley. Um, but he's wonderful at Portraying clothing and using them to make his points and using them to make his make his arguments effectively in the satirical prints that he's or um, the paintings that he's making. So with tight lacing or fashion before ease, this is one of the classics. It's one of the earliest where you have a woman who's holding onto a bedpost and she's being laced in by a man, a woman, and an either. Um, black or um from the subcontinent boy we don't know if he's enslaved or not we don't know his position and like many you know uh portrayals at this time his race is effectively indistinguishable um between black or subcontinent um because again it's it's how it's how the colorist is is presenting it rather than um anything that's uh defined by the print but we have these three these three people helping this woman get dressed which to the modern eye, to the contemporary eye, seems like a lot of people to help this one woman get dressed. It's it's intended to be funny. It's intended to to poke fun at this idea of fashion and what would women would go through. But and it's it's you know, title has fashion victims. So it's and there's a little book with a monkey in the foreground, much like Hogarth, who says a victim of fashion. So again, it's reinforcing all of those tropes, which by this time are definitely alive and well that women are, you know, just blindly following fashion wherever fashion goes. So when we look more closely at the um, at the stays themselves and at how he's portrayed them at the time, he uh he's portrayed the lacing of these stays with two laces which is your first flag as a dress historian of underwear um, in this very specific period. Um, Because at the time lace, uh, you only needed one lace to lace stays. So if we think of 19th century corsets, that's when you get the crisscross, you know, lacing um, where you have two, which, you know, think Titanic, think gone with the wind. Um, However, in the 18th century, you're using one lace and you're using what's called a spiral method. So effectively, it's almost like a zigzag um, or a whip stitch. So you're going, you're zigging up and coming back down, zigging up and coming back down. And the, eye, the eyelets on the back are alternating. Again, very technical, but bear with. Um, so they're alternating. So you only actually need one um, to lace this. You only need one lace. First thing. Um, the second thing is where they're actually pulling is about her middle back. And if we're thinking about how where you where you can compress the body, if you're going to practice tight lacing, you're not going to do it at the middle of the rib cage um, because that can't really go anywhere. It doesn't have. It's not the place where it can be compressed. There is bone. Um, Instead, in theory with tight lacing, you'll compress at the waist. So you compressed at the squishy bit that does not have a rib cage impending, you know, its its tightening ability. So that's when I started to look at the rest of the print and think about the rest of the print and think about who's in the print and what other clues that Colette is using. So Colette is using, um, particularly if we look at the man, A, the fact that the man is there, um, is a is a flag, um, but he's effectively dressed for riding. He has a hat. His gloves are on the chair. So if we start to think about riding and we start to think about an equine um, sort of metaphor that's happening here, it looks much more like the man is pulling at the reins of his horse rather than lacing potentially his wife's stays. Um, probably his wife's stays, and then the maid is effectively along for the ride, um, as is, as is the boy. Um, so that's when we can start to unpack the print more in terms of gender and less in terms of fashion. So more in this idea that yes, on the, on the surface, if you have this idea that women are, you know, so silly that they're going to be, you know, portrayed in fashion and do anything to achieve it. Um, but then if we think about it in terms of gender hierarchies, That's a completely different spin on it. And that's a different tension, which effectively they're talking about. And effectively he's, he's poking fun at. Um, So this idea of, you know, not necessarily reining her in, um, in that way, but reining her in, in a definitely more horsey equine way. Um, Which again, this is a really, it's a really small detail, which, (laughs) Which makes all of that potentially possible, which makes that, you know, reading of it and saying this isn't actually about tight lacing as a concept. This is about, you know, showing either different types of bodies, talking about gender, talking about gender relations, talking about open flirtation of households, talking about all of these different class differences, different gender elements, race differences, all of that within this one bedroom scene. ostensibly about uh getting dressed and oh. we can pull that forward um in another print which is by Gilray which is of Thomas Paine so if we're pulling this forward um into the 90s and we have Thomas Paine who's lacing Britannia and effectively like many printmakers Gilray actually lifts effectively the composition of the colette um and Instead, Britannia isn't holding onto a bedpost, but she's holding on to a tree trunk. And she's identified by, you know, her shield and um, she has the olive branch and the sphere in front of her, but she's in her petticoats and she's wearing stays. And we see Thomas Paine, who is identified as, you know, by his name on the cottage behind him staymaker from Thetford. So his father was a staymaker. Thomas Paine originally was a staymaker's apprentice before he became a privateer. So he has that connection to the trade. Again, a very clever play by Gilray. Um, but this time we actually see this idea of reining a woman in, in a really concentrated way, in reining in politics. So reining in not a woman for you know a gender idea, but instead reigning in the constitution you know threatening not sort of that gender hierarchy but threatening instead this radical idea from you know from revolutionary france which is you know getting hold and physically tightening and constricting and constraining the british constitution which again if we make another jump uh into 1812 which yes this does go out of the the time period of the book um But this is its one exception. Uh, If we go in 1812, we see um, the Prince Regent and uh, he is being laced by his private secretary, um, Mahan. And this time it's the fact that we have the future king of England um, and the, the United Kingdom being laced in in the same way. That Britannia was in the same way that the woman in the bedroom was which again has that gendered power hierarchy but this time it's the king being reigned in and it's it's a man being reigned in so again we have those tensions that are playing with politics and power but all through this one device which if we think about why this device is in people's heads and why all of a sudden it appears visually it's because satirists are really observant and they use clothing really specifically in this idea that at the time, women start to have this more frontal um, you know, pushing chest, which effectively makes their waist smaller in a slightly different way. Amplification of the body has always made your waist look smaller. If you add massive panniers, and stays, which add about an inch to your waistline. Um, so if you wear stays, they add, all those layers do add an actual inch. They don't necessarily, because you know, you're not actually tight lacing, you're not compressing, but that visual appeal has always been there. If you add volume um, above and below, it will visually make your waist look smaller. It's just illusion but this time we see it in a slightly different way which potentially suggests that this idea of smaller waists was in that popular imagination because it's being worn in fashion at that change of fashion which is going you know from the traditional hoops to to now into our spheres and S curve and bums and and handkerchiefs mm. There's a lot on (laughs) stays. No, there's a lot,
2: but it brings so many things that we've been discussing together. So I can't think of a kind of better note to end, well, almost end um, our discussion on. Thank you for taking us through the things we've almost certainly not thought of um, when imagining those things, those images that, as you said, are very much still with us.
1: They Um, are. And I hope, I hope this book can help knock them down. No, that would, that would be great. Um, so before I remind, (laughs) spread spread the word. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, before I
2: remind our listeners of the title of the book so they can go look it up, um, I do want to ask if there's anything you might be currently working on or looking to work on next, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to briefly
1: highlight or preview. Um, I'm actually, I'm, it's a bit of a change, so I will be writing, uh, something hopefully about, four students about um, sort of methodologically about thinking about satirical prints and dress history. Um, But actually the next project is looking at a network of actual women, which is a change for me because most of this book is about women who, um, because of satirical prints or because of the nature of my sources, I, I deal with very few real women or individual women Um, I deal with more demographics of women or this idea of fashionable women as a set. Uh, But the next project is looking at a circle of political and artistic women in roughly the same time period. So um, sort of 1760s through the end of the century um, around Lady Rockingham, this network of political women um, and their and her sort of artistic circle, political circle, um, intellectual circle. So. Slightly different but it also involves dress because it's um inspired by or sort of jumping off from a court dress which uh lady rockingham wore um and which is now in the collection of historic royal palaces which was on display this past summer and year so yeah cool all right well i think it is still on display if you want to see it it's very big and very silver (laughs) Good to know.
2: All right. Well, thank you very much for that preview. And of course, best of luck with the project. Um, And while you're working on it, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled The Modern Venus, Dress, Underwear and Accessories in the Late 18th Century Atlantic World, published by Bloomsbury. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's
1: been an absolute joy.